All right, we are in 1 Samuel chapter 16. We're basically going through the Bible, following the story from in the beginning, and we've gotten to the place where Israel has become a nation. They've conquered much of the land. Uh, we've had our first king. We saw last week what a failure he was, and God is in the process of replacing him with a second king. That's where we're at. So, in chapter 15, God told Saul he was definitely going to be replaced because Saul talked the talk, but he didn't walk the walk. He was a hypocrite. God told him to, told him to do something. He said he'd do it. He didn't do it. Then he turned around and said he did it. And God said, no, nah, I'm going to put somebody into place who actually does what I say. That person is chosen in chapter 16. Now, right before... This chapter, last week, it said that the prophet Samuel grieved for Saul but would never go see him again. So after he turned his back on God, their friendship was broken and it left a big hole in his heart. Some time has passed and God speaks to him. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you go on grieving over Saul? I have rejected him as king of Israel. But now go to Bethlehem to a man named Jesse because I've chosen one of his sons to be king. Verse 6. When they arrived, Samuel saw Jesse's son Eliab and said to himself, This man standing here in the Lord's presence is surely the one he's chosen. But the Lord said to him, Pay no attention to how tall and handsome he is. Here we go again. This is the good-looking guy. He's the tall one. Surely he's the king. God says, Don't look at him. I've rejected him. I do not judge as people judge. They look on the outward appearance, but I look at the heart. So Samuel says to Jesse, one of your sons is going to be the next king. Bring him in here. And all his sons get lined up, and Samuel sees the tallest, most handsome one, figures that's the one. God says, no. Was it this one? No. Is it this one? No. Is it this one? No. Are these all your sons? Well, we've got one more. He's the young one. He's off taking care of the sheep. I didn't figure you'd even want to see him. Go get him. And when he came... Samuel heard from God, he's the one. Anoint him king over Israel. David was his name. Not particularly tall, not particularly handsome, not particularly impressive in the least. I can imagine Samuel going, okay. Verse 13, so Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. Stop. Have you ever read through the Bible and you come up against something that you've read like 20 times and it means nothing to you? But then you stop and you say, wait a minute, and a little light bulb goes off? Right there. That, that was a light bulb moment for me. Why does it say he anointed him in front of his brothers? Why didn't he say in front of his father? Why didn't he say before God? Why didn't he just say anointed him? That never even crossed my mind until I started studying for these lessons. We're going to see David facing Goliath next chapter. And something's going to happen in that chapter that's very, well, it's kind of discouraging, but it all works out good. David, who isn't even part of the battle, he just comes to bring food to the family, sees the challenge of Goliath, and he says, why isn't anybody fighting this guy? He's insulting God and insulting Israel. And then... He also heard anybody who fights him will be a, get this huge reward. He says, I'll go. And his brother's like, you shut up and go home. You're just an arrogant little brat. I'm using my own words, but that's pretty much what they told him. You shouldn't even be here. Go home. 
Who are the ones that said that? His brothers. Samuel looked at him, said, ah, he's nothing. His brothers heard him selected as king of Israel, and in the next chapter, they're still dissing him. I don't understand what it is with us people. We are just so, I don't know. I don't even know what word to use. God said this is the next king, and even his brothers wouldn't give him any respect. Did you know that there was a time when Jesus' family publicly called him crazy and tried to stop him from ministering? There was another time that Jesus said, you know, a prophet has honor everywhere he goes except for his own hometown. (laughs) It's great that you're praying for your lost family, that they will come to know the Lord like you do. And I would encourage you, continue to pray for them and encourage to minister to them. But do what I do. Pray that somebody else will meet them to share the, the gospel with them. Because oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, you don't get the respect you deserve in your own family. It's a crazy thing. So Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Now the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Okay, so the Holy Spirit abandons Saul because Saul abandoned the Holy Spirit. Saul abandoned God, so God abandoned Saul. Now the Holy Spirit comes and fills David. This we all get. Here's the troubling part. An evil spirit from the Lord tormented Saul. Does that give you a funny feeling? To think that God sends an evil spirit to torment somebody? I've read that lots of times over the years, and that never settled well with me. So I'm thinking, well, either I don't get the text, or I don't get God. Because that just never resonated right in my heart. Why in the world would God torment somebody with an evil spirit? That sounds so unlike the God I know. Well, there's obviously something I don't know. And I never studied it out until I got to this chapter with y'all. I think I got a pretty decent handle on it now. Let me take you through my thinking process, okay? First of all, just knowing what I know about Scripture and looking at it a little more closely, I thought, okay, we've got two options here. Option number one, this is a figure of speech. Option number two, it's literal. I want to look at both. So here's the figure of speech argument. Even today, we use the word spirit in a non-literal way. For example, oh, the eighth grade won the spirit award because they shouted the loudest at the pep rally. So we know that none of the eighth graders were possessed. (laughs) They just had more spirit. So we use the word spirit in a non-literal way, even to this very day. It's figurative. Or how about this one? Well, let me just read the way I got it. Are you in good spirits today? We say that, don't we? We do. We don't mean anything about spirits. We just mean, how's your emotional and mental state? Now, we're going to read about Saul, that his emotional and mental state is really whacked out from this point forward. So it's reasonable that he's talking about Saul's emotional and mental state. There's another passage in the scriptures that kind of give this inclination, or this understanding, I should say. Judges 9.23, 
Let me read it to you in two different versions. Um, God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the citizens of Shechem who acted treacherously against Abimelech. That's Judges 9 in the NIV. Listen to it in the Good News Bible. God made Abimelech and the men of Shechem hostile to each other, and they rebelled against Abimelech. They didn't even use the word spirit. Those translators just figured, oh, it's a figure of speech, and they translated it right out. So it's conceivable. It's not foolish. It's not disrespectful to the word of God to come to that conclusion. But I think it doesn't quite answer it. I really don't think it's a figure of speech. I think it's literal. Well, that opens up a huge can of worms, and most people don't want to deal with that can of worms. So figurative works easier. But I think it's literal. First of all, God can command evil spirits, can he not? I mean, he is God. Not only can he, but it makes sense that he does. Why isn't it that there are evil spirits flitting throughout here now, causing us all sorts of chaos right now? People levitating off the grounds, their heads spinning in circles. Why aren't we being tormented right now? You think it's because they don't want to? Of course they want to. They're evil spirits. Give them a chance, they will torment people. The only reason they're not is because God's not letting them. God commands evil spirits all the time. He doesn't permit them to accost people all the time. Sometimes he lets them, though, because it happens. Satan, the chief of all evil spirits, came to God and needed permission to hassle Job. He couldn't do it without God's permission. So I know God commands evil spirits. He's God. He rules. He commands everything. Even Satan must obey him. And I know that evil spirits are more than willing to torment people. But why would God do this to Saul? I mean, it, it seems so mean, so vindictive. Well, you do know God's not mean, I hope. And you do know God's not vindictive, I hope. So, he does it, and it's not for mean reasons, and it's not for vindictive reasons. What does that leave? Do you remember the story of Moses? God gave Pharaoh opportunities to follow him, but Pharaoh refused. God hardened Pharaoh's heart because he wanted to use Pharaoh as a tool to accomplish his will. Pharaoh was lost. He had no respect or love for God, but God still chose to use him to accomplish his will. God will use people willingly or unwillingly to accomplish his will. Because his will is the best, and he's going to make it happen. And if somebody wants to be obstinate, God says, be obstinate, I'm still going to use you. God used Satan, not only in the Job situation, but it says in the scripture that Satan entered into Judas Iscariot, and then Judas went out and betrayed Jesus. Now, Judas was already evil. He was already inclined to this sort of behavior. Satan just encouraged gave him a little nudge in the right direction. Well, why would God let that happen? Because God wanted Jesus to die. Jesus came to die for our sins. A good person wouldn't have killed him. God decided to use an evil person to do a bad work, something they wanted to do anyway. Satan probably figured, look at me, I'm killing the Son of God, I'm winning. And God's just like, you just keep on going. That's, that's our plan. So God has used bad men, Pharaoh, Judas, God has used Satan to inspire bad men, always to accomplish his good purpose. So Saul abandoned God. The Holy Spirit left Saul, and now there's a vacancy sign up. 
So God sends an evil spirit. Yes, Steve, but why? What good could possibly have come from it? Let's take a look. 1 Samuel 16, 15. Saul's attendant said to him, See, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command his servants here to search for someone who can play the harp. He'll play when the evil spirit comes upon you, and you'll feel better. So Saul said to his attendants, find someone. All right, so check this out. You know music soothes the savage beast. Saul was in fits of rage. He was angry. He was confused. He was hostile. And his servant said, okay, you're obviously under duress here. Let's find somebody to play the harp for you and make you feel good. Has anybody ever put on good music when you're uptight and the music makes you feel better? Let me see your hands. Yeah, it's good therapy, especially if you're being tormented like he was. So Saul says, that's a good idea. Go find somebody. Verse 21, uh, verse 18. One of the servants answered, I've seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the harp. 21. David came to Saul and entered his service, and Saul liked him very much. Verse 23. Whenever the Spirit from God came upon Saul, David would take his harp and play, then relief would come, and he'd feel better, and the evil spirit would leave. So, God used this evil spirit to do several things. One, to get David to court. Remember, he's the new king. Saul has not yet been kicked out of office. Why? God already told him he wasn't going to be king anymore. And God told him his dynasty was done. Because God is gracious. God is giving him more time to relent, to repent, to learn, to grow. But David still needs to come to court. He's a shepherd. He's got a few things to learn, a little experience to have. He needs to become the man who wins the heart of the people. So God uses this to get David to court. He also uses this to make David valuable to Saul. Saul needs David. At this point, the man can go nowhere without him. He's dependent upon David. This is just funny. The king, who's just been dethroned, has inadvertently hired on his staff the next king. And now this next king gets to learn and meet everybody in the court, find out what it's like to be a king. Pretty cool. But it gets even better than that. David played the harp. David was a musician. He was a songwriter. You probably know this. David wrote most of the Psalms in the Bible. So he wasn't just a songwriter and a musician. He was also a prophet. I don't doubt that while he was strumming the harp to make Saul feel better every once in a while, he sang. And since he's the prophet and the psalm writer, it's not a big jump of conclusion to say he was probably singing scripture. Stuff that would become scripture, that you and I know as scripture, but wasn't known as scripture then. He was ministering to, to us all, singing the words of God to Saul. David was a good man, a man after God's own heart. After Saul died, he became king. I'm jumping forward for a reason. Um, he wrote some psalms, but then something happened, and he got stupid, and he committed a horrible sin. He committed murder, and he committed adultery. And then he came before God, and in one of the psalms, he repented of his sin. Listen to what he wrote. Create a pure heart in me, O God. 
and put a loyal spirit in me. Do not banish me from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit away from me. Because David had seen that happen with Saul. He'd already seen that happen. Why? Because Saul turned his back on God. How? Through disobedience. David realized, here we are some chapters later, that I just turned my back on God through disobedience. Maybe he's going to take the Holy Spirit from me too. Please, no, God, I'm sorry. Don't. And God didn't. Because unlike Saul, Saul never repented of his sins. David was a man after God's own heart. Doesn't mean he was perfect, but when he did wrong, he fessed up. He manned up to his wrong and said, God, I really messed up here. Bad. Please forgive me. And God's into the forgiveness business. And David was not abandoned by God because he never abandoned God permanently. So, I'm seeing at least five good things that have come out of this torment of this evil spirit. One, God gets David to court. Two, he makes David valuable to Saul. And three, dependent. Saul needs David. Fourthly, and perhaps most importantly, he uses David to minister to Saul. He's got his own follow-along worship leader who happens to be a prophet, a psalm writer, a therapist, and an exorcist. So God sends him an evil spirit and then sends him the man who can take away the evil spirit. All the while, hoping, giving Saul every opportunity to get right with him. Who else gets their own psalmist to follow them around and minister to them? God loved Saul, even though Saul turned his back on him. Why did he send him an evil spirit? It was the only thing that could possibly get through to this knucklehead. So God will hurt you if the hope is to help you. Who wouldn't do that? How many of you mamas and papas seen a deep splinter in your kid's finger? And they said, no, don't take it out, don't take it out, it'll hurt too much. Oh, I'm taking it out. But it's going to hurt. Yes, it will. But it's going to hurt a lot worse if I leave it in. And out it comes. You don't hurt them because you like hurting them, you hurt them to help them. Doctors do the same thing. Oh, one of the most wretched experiences in my life. I was somewhere around five years old. I was little, and I broke this arm. And I remember the doctor saying, we got to straighten it out. Because it went like this. So they had to put it back together again. Fit it like a puzzle. Scrape it till the bone lined up just right. Oh, that hurt. I still remember. No, just leave it. It's okay now. That's what I was saying. It'll be all right. Just leave it alone. Don't touch it. We're sorry. We have to hold him down. They weren't mean or bad people. They had to do what they had to do. God's not a mean or bad God. He had to do what he had to do. So he got David to court. He made David valuable to Saul. He made Saul dependent on David. He used David to minister to Saul with the hope of redeeming him. And he exposed Saul to a real godly man. He exposed Saul to true love and humility. The very thing that Saul lacked he got to see mirrored in David day in and day out. A man after God's own heart. He had the perfect mentor, the perfect person he could emulate right there 
all the time with him. It was a gift of God. By using this evil spirit, God offered Saul untold and unprecedented blessings and opportunities for redemption. Know this. God uses evil to accomplish good. That is a God thing. Only God can do that. He doesn't make the evil, but he uses it. Could you just imagine if I had a Mr. Goodsense footlong up here? <laughs> and I inadvertently left it in the cupboard, and it's tuna. I inadvertently left it in the cupboard for a month. Went on vacation, came home. And as soon as I opened the door, ew, what is that? And I go through the house looking for that charming fragrance. And I find this green and purple oozing out of my cupboard. Replace the cupboard sandwich. Mike is saying, Steve, you're killing me, man. You're killing me. And if I was God, I could take that sandwich and squeeze it, and out would come steak and potatoes, medium rare, steaming, spicy hot, if I was God. But since I'm not, I just have to replace the cupboard, fumigate the house, and order an original, and I won't have tuna again for three months. Only God can take something nasty, squeeze it, something with no good in it at all, Squeeze it, recycle, and out comes goodness. It's amazing. It's one of the biggest God traits there is, as far as I'm concerned. Parting the Red Sea, that was cool. But taking evil and squeezing it, making good come from it, that's, an, that's a miracle. That, pick up the Bible. Go home and read it. Story after story of him doing that. He takes evil, bad things, and good comes out of them. One of the best verses in all the Bible, in my opinion, is Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good for those that love God, for those who are the called according to his purposes. All things work together for good because God's in them for those who love God. Maybe you're going through some really dark valleys right now. I know a lot of you are. Financial, emotional, relational, spiritual you got to grab a hold of that verse and make it your own God never promises that we won't go through hard times he just promises that if you love him good will come from the hard times you go through and here's the thing if you're gonna go through hard times you got two options hard times that will do you no good or do anybody else any good or hard times that will do people good which one do you want of course, it's a no-brainer. If we could redeem it, it's worth doing. Sometimes we get to see the good that comes out, and sometimes we don't. Sometimes it may take 40 years. I've got a video clip about such a hard time. Let me show it to you. We have one chance to reach these people. No one's ever made contact with these people and lived to talk about it. Daddy loves you. 
Red! We got company. So far, we found four of them. Are we going to run? No. Good movie if you haven't seen it, The End of the Spear. True story, or based on a true story. Unreached people group in the middle of the jungle, these missionaries stumbled upon them. They saw them by flying over and said, you know what, we're going to make contact. Everybody knew about these people group. Anybody who's ever gone to see them before has been murdered. Leave them alone. Everybody knows about their reputation. Just leave them alone. They need Jesus. We're going. At first, it was good. They didn't land their plane. They flew over. In fact, uh, one of those, that pilot invented this technique, which is still used to this day to get supplies into dense jungle canopies. Tight little circle, lowering a rope, a basket. And they put gifts in the basket to try to bridge the gap, to let these people mean, no, they mean no harm. They landed. They befriended each other. And then one day, they just turned on them and murdered them. Years later, they found out why. Gossip. One of the Indians said, they've really come to steal our women. So they went and killed them. So what else are you going to do with a bunch of people who've come to steal your women? Well, Nate Saint left a five-year-old at home. There's an article that came out right around the time this movie came out. Let me read to you some portions of the article. I wanted to grow up to be like him, Steve Saint said during a preview for the movie. That was what the future held for me. But what the future really held for the boy was sorrow. His father and four other missionaries were killed by Ecuadorian tribesmen, a historic tragedy powerfully told in the movie. When his mother told him of his father's death, Saint recalled, I couldn't imagine there was any reason to go on living. It turns out there was. Some would call it a miracle. The Wadani were caught in a generations-old culture of violence. Sixty percent of adult deaths were homicides. The missionaries taught them that the Creator did not want them to spear, and that his son, the Creator's son, had died by the spear, but never speared back. Steve, the son of Nate, went on to grow up among the Wadani people. In fact, one of the men that murdered his father became one of his good friends. He said, I've killed his father. I'm now responsible for him. I will train him in our ways and teach him how to live. And they became great friends. That remarkable reconciliation and the Wadani's abandonment of a violent lifestyle were results of God's grace, Saint said. Within a few years, homicide rates dropped by 90%, and 20% of the Wadani became Christian. 
Can you imagine all the years in between remembering that verse? All things work together for good. How could anything good come of this? A bunch of crazy men murdered my dad who just went there to love on him. How could any good come out of that? What would you have said? I don't know. I'm not God, but I trust God. God said all things work together for good for those that love him, and I'm banking on it. I may not know how. I may not see it today. I might not see it for 20 years. I'm sure Nate Saint didn't see it when he was being murdered. But up in heaven, looking down, I'm sure you go to heaven, you ask any of those five guys, would you have had it any other way? I'll bet you a pot of manna, all of them will say, I would have done it all over again to get this tribe saved. Listen, sometimes the devil's in the details, no pun intended. The scripture says, all things work together for good for those that love God. Not for Saul, not for Judas, not for your next door neighbor, but for those that love God. So I guess one of our greatest privileges is to be like those missionaries and bring the love of God to as many people as we can so that all things can work together for them too. People in your lives you love, tell them about Jesus so all things can work together for them too, for good. Jesus was betrayed by Judas Iscariot. How can any good come out of that? The only good man who's ever lived on this planet, never did anything wrong to anybody, is murdered. Where's God? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. His apostles didn't know. Nobody knew. How can any good come out of this? But it did. The death of the Savior, just like with the missionaries. We know that all things work together for good. For those that love God, those who are called according to His purpose, we know. I want that to be an anchor for your life. Memorize that verse. Put it on your refrigerator, in your car dashboard, in your wallet, whatever you have to do, so that should a hard time come, you don't lose hope, you don't despair. You just say, okay. Like that guy in the video clip, just prop me up, God, and help me to fight. And should you be so gracious, I'd love to see the good coming out of this. I know it's coming, but can I see it? I'd appreciate that. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've not given your life to Christ, I encourage you to do so. There is no greater thing, and there is no other hope. And it's a great hope. He promises, promises us, not only will all things work together good on this end, but in the next end, wipe away all tears, no more sorrow, no more death. Former things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. He will make a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Perfect goodness for those who love him and those who are called according to his purpose.